Well, good morning. It's good to be with you today. I'll admit I'm a little fearful. Not only is this a sobering text and you lost an hour of sleep, but there was no coffee out there. So if I see a little bit of a head nod, that's okay. There's no judgment, even though this is second service. Well, I have three quick announcements. One is Discover. Discovers are kind of a new class we do for people that are newer to the church. So if you want to know who are we, what are our core values, what's important to us, what are some of our beliefs, this will be on March 22nd during the second service. So you can find the information through the e-news, you can sign up. It's a great place to meet other new people, meet some of the staff. So that's March 22nd. And then later that evening, we'll have a forum here in this room. So we're trying to do a couple forums each year. And the next one we'll do is actually on anxiety, fear, and worry. So there will be a little bit of a teaching time presentation as well as some Q&A and a panel time. So it's that same evening, March 22nd, here in this room. And then speaking of a little bit of anxiety, worry, and you might have noticed this morning, but we've taken some precautions as far as um, touching too many things that are similar. So there was no coffee, got rid of donuts temporarily. And the other thing to make you aware of is the offering. So we're not taking an offering this morning. And what you should know if you're a second service person, and you, you probably are because you're in the same seats you are every week, um, is next week when you come in, you'll actually hand your offering in the back. So this week, after the service, you can drop it off in a box in the back. But next week, you'll probably be encouraged to drop it off as you come in. So that's one small precaution we're taking um, just to love others who are concerned during this season and to care for one another. But if you think the guilt won't be there today because we're not doing an offering, think otherwise because we will talk about money today. So the guilt will still be there, but you can give at the end, just so you know. It's a gracious guilt, not a legalistic guilt. With that, will you pray with me? God, you are our way maker. God, you are so good to us. Even this morning, the fact that we are here is a reminder that you have been faithful, that you have preserved us through the ups and downs of life, and we're here. So we thank you for that. Thank you for a church that loves to preach the whole counsel of God, and so we go book by book, chapter by chapter. So Lord, I trust today you have us in Nehemiah 5 for a reason. Lord, I pray that you would not only Um, encourage us, but that you would lead us, that you would give us wisdom, and that you would be working in our hearts today. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for how kind and loving and gracious you are to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the most famous parts of the American Revolution was Valley Forge. In December of 1777, General Washington, he marched his tired worn-out army 20 miles northwest of Philadelphia into Valley Forge. This would prove to be one of the hardest winters they would endure. They suffered shortages of almost all supplies. They were starving. They lacked food. 20% of the men did not have shoes, and so frostbite became a common thing. Disease spread in part because they lacked clothing, uniforms, and blankets to keep warm. Some soldiers said they would even stay up all night rather than going to sleep and risk freezing to death. It's estimated that 2,000 men died that winter at Valley Forge. So that's not 2,000 men from a battle, that's from internal conditions in the camp. Well, part of what makes this story even worse is that a lot of it could have been prevented. Many local farmers, 
farmers who likely supported the revolution, they actually didn't sell their food because they thought they could get higher prices in the spring. And then others would go into Philadelphia and sell to the British because they paid with silver or gold. And there were clothing and uniforms available, but they stayed in the stores of Boston because they wanted higher and higher profits. And so not only was it bad enough that they lacked the supplies they needed and that they were enduring these conditions, but they experienced the greed and selfishness of their fellow colonists. These colonists put themselves before the cause and their country, and they threatened the very revolution they supported. Well, just in case you don't know, spoiler alert, they survived, we won the war, and we're here today. But what we'll see is that our story here in Nehemiah 5, it's actually very similar to those conditions. Last week in Nehemiah 4, we talked about how the threat was an external threat. It was enemies outside of them. But what we'll see in Nehemiah 5 today is that God's people actually face internal threats. That selfishness, greed, disunity, and a lack of love can split the people apart and they can lose any momentum they've gained. Chuck Swindoll writes, The productive sounds of a wall being raised up have been replaced with the destructive sounds of people tearing one another down. They aren't motivated by a love of God or a love of their neighbor, but by a love of self. Well, Nehemiah in this chapter, he will rebuke them, and he'll seek reforms in light of who God is. And the lesson the people must learn, and the lesson I hope we learn today is that God is not a cold, uncompassionate God. And so we should not be cold, uncompassionate people. As God's people, we should reflect God's heart and how we care about and care for others. Well, today we'll first look at Jerusalem's pain and problem in 1 to 6. And then we'll notice God's commands and God's concerns. And then finally, we'll see Nehemiah's response and reforms. We'll start first in verses 1 to 6, and we'll look at Jerusalem's pain and problem. Well, Nehemiah 5, verses 1 to 6, it reports that poverty had hit the city. In verse 2, we're told that some citizens, probably those without land, that they're barely able to feed their own families. And it could be that the husbands were working at the wall, and so they had to neglect their farms and their land. Then in verse 3, we see that others have to mortgage their lands to other wealthy Jews who are charging interest. This not only puts them in debt, but it puts them in danger of losing their land, their very source of income. Well, there's a compounding problem in verses 4 to 6 here. They're also having to pay the king's tax. Now, it's tax season, so we can feel their frustration. No one likes to pay their taxes. But this is a tax from the king of Persia. And these kings would take their money whether there were hard conditions or not. And it also appears like the local officials, what they would do was charging more money and they would take a little bit off the top. So it's not only bad enough to pay a foreign king, but your neighbors are stealing your money. It might remind you of how in Robin Hood, another Disney movie, King John, lo- king John lives a life of luxury while his people are sick and starving. But even worse than that, the sheriff of Nottingham, he callously forces them to pay their last coins so that he can have more money. 
Well, these added taxes in Nehemiah 5, they seem crushing. How could they get out of poverty with little income and yet rising debt and high interest rates? Well, the reality is they couldn't. In verse 6, it tells us that some of them were forced to sell themselves or they sold their children into debt slavery. Now, at this time, debt slavery, it was actually a means by which people could work their way out of financial debt. And though it was not like the horrendous chattel slavery we know in the U.S., it was still a hard condition, and it's likely many of them were mistreated. Some commentators even believe that the reason women are singled out in verse 5 is that because this situation of debt slavery, some of them were being forced into prostitution, or they were being forced to become a second wife of the wealthy Jews. But making matters worse, while the law made provisions that you could buy your family member back out of this debt slavery, these people have no money. And so part of their complaint here is, we have no money to purchase our kids back. And so at this time, you not only have desperate circumstances, some real trials and pain for the majority of the people, but what we see is that other Jews were actually taking advantage of the situation. That rather than generously sharing their resources to get the community through a hard season, they charge heavy interest. They steal homes and lands. They enslave their fellow Jews. And then verse 8 tells us they even sell them to surrounding nations. They're not only apathetic to the struggle of their fellow Jew, but they take advantage of them. They have plenty of food and land and money, but they just want a little more. And it's their idol of comfort, it robs them of having any compassion. They're more concerned about their gain than others' pain. And I want you to imagine a scenario with me. For the record, I have nothing against car dealerships or car salesmen. My brother works for Ray Skillman, so there's a soft spot in my heart. But just imagine with me the scenario. We're here at our church. We have a car salesman who is doing great financially. And we have a single mom in our church who's struggling She comes to him, she's barely getting by, and she needs a car. She needs a car just so she can get to work to pay for the apartment for her family. Now, the car salesman, he doesn't feel any compassion for her. He just sees her as another chance to make money. And so what he does is rather than helping her get a good deal or even giving her a car, he gives her an unreliable car at too high of a price, and he attaches a high-interest loan to it. Now, because of the high interest, because it was an unreliable car, she actually has to pay to get things repaired. And so she's quickly upside down on the loan. And yet he still feels no compassion for her. And so he goes after her. He goes after the car, and he has her wages garnished. Now with her wages garnished, she can't afford the apartment. So she and her two young kids, they're actually kicked out of their apartment, and they're thrown to the streets. Now, because this is local, the current picks this up, and they share all the details of the story. And the details include that those two people go here to College Park Church Fishers. Now, how would you feel about that situation? How would you feel toward the car salesman and feel toward this woman? What would justice look like in this situation? And can you imagine how local people would view our church if they're reading about the way we treat one another with such selfish acts? But that's actually what's going on here in Nehemiah 5, that the people are suffering, 
And we're told that the nations now taunt them. The nations are mocking them, saying, look how greedy you are. Look at the injustices that are spreading throughout your community. So we see here that Jerusalem, they have a real problem on their hands. But the problem isn't out there. The problem is an internal problem. Through them, God's glory is not being displayed through sacrificial service. But God's glory is actually being diminished through their selfishness. Before moving on to see how God responds to this, I want to think for a minute, how would this apply to us as a church? A church that's about to enter a new building and a new season. Now, just like a rebuilt Jerusalem, a new building will be a huge blessing. We'll have lots of ministry opportunities as we move into a building. And yet, blessings and buildings, they don't remove all your problems. In fact, sometimes they create new ones. And in Nehemiah's day, it was probably so easy to get focused on the wall that they neglected God's glory and the good of one another. And I think we'll be tempted to do the exact same thing. And so the caution here is to not get distracted and to not let our guard down. That we will be tempted with selfishness. We'll be tempted with having a demanding, entitled spirit. About being opinionated about how something in the church looks or how it feels to us. We'll be tempted to put our own hopes for the space or for the ministry we're a part of in front of the rest of the needs and the good of the church as a whole. We'll be tempted to just consume and spectate rather than sacrificially participate. And we'll be tempted to be pot stirrers rather than peacemakers. And yet, listen to the words of Paul to us in this context in Philippians 2. Paul tells us, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. My encouragement today and for this season is to guard against putting me before the we, to cultivate humility and unity, to look not only to your interests and your desires, but to the interests of the church and even the community as a whole. Well, verses 1 to 5, they help us see this internal threat. They help us see the problem going on in Jerusalem, as well as the pain being experienced. But in the verses 6 and following, we now see God's commands and God's concerns. As we read about this terrible and even tragic situation, what is God thinking about this? How would God respond? Well, verse 6, it echoes Exodus. If you remember the beginning of Exodus, when Israel is in slavery to Egypt, when they're being oppressed, it says their cries go up to God. And in verse 6, we're told that a great outcry goes out among the people and that Nehemiah hears it and that he becomes outraged because of it. Now we should pause here and note that throughout the book of Nehemiah, that Nehemiah actually displays how God feels, that Nehemiah's concerns are actually the concerns of God. And so in chapter 1, when Nehemiah laments the condition of broken down Jerusalem, He's actually mirroring the heart of God who wants their safety and their blessing. That when Nehemiah becomes passionate about this city reflecting the glory of God to pagan nations, he's mirroring the heart of God that wants his glory to be known. And then here in chapter 5, verse 6, when Nehemiah becomes righteously angry because of how the poor are treated, 
He reflects God's heart, that God hates injustice, and that God has a heart of compassion to the poor. Now, it's because Nehemiah knows God. It says because he lives with a fear or an awe of God, that's how he can reflect the heart and the concerns of God. Now, even though it might be apparent to you why Nehemiah was outraged, I want to show how the sin of the people, it not only contradicted God's law, but it kind of countered God's desire for them. So first, it's important to know that taking advantage of the poor by charging interest, God had already outlawed that. Let me just read a couple verses to see this. First in Exodus 22, it says, If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest. Similarly, in Leviticus 25, it says, If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner. He shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. Now the wealthy Jews in Nehemiah chapter 5, they had obviously broken these commands. The problem here, though, isn't just their sin of greed. The problem is that they're failing in their calling of God to reflect God. That they not only reject God's commands, but they ignore God's concerns. And the principle we see throughout the Bible is that God's people were to care for the hurting and the vulnerable, those most likely to be taken advantage of, because God cares for the hurting and the vulnerable. Our love and our care for the poor is rooted in God's love and care for the poor. In the Bible, we're told that God's heart, God's heart goes out to the outcast, the weak, and the vulnerable ones, which would include the poor we're talking about in Nehemiah chapter 5. Theologian Nicholas Walterstoff, he refers to the quartet of the vulnerable, repeated throughout Scripture. It's these four groups that are often packaged together as those God especially loves and is concerned for. It's the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the sojourner, which was essentially an immigrant or a refugee. Now, these aren't the only vulnerable people groups in the Bible, and it could be expanded in our day to other vulnerable groups. But what we see is that God promises to care for them, that God promises to be a husband to the widow. God promises to be a father to the fatherless, to provide for the needy, and to be a gracious host to the stranger. One example of this is Zechariah 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Tim Keller explains it this way. Of why, are the Bible, why is the Bible so often introducing God with these terms? He says, it's striking to see how often God is introduced as the defender of these vulnerable groups. Now, don't miss the significance of this. When people ask me, meaning Tim, how do you want to be introduced? I usually propose they say, this is Tim Keller, minister at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. Of course, I am many other things, but that is the main thing I spend my time doing in public life. Realize then how significant it is that the biblical writers introduce God 
as a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. This is one of the main things he does in the world. He identifies with the powerless and he takes up their cause. Well, seeing who God is and what God cares about, that should have been motivation to these wealthier Jews in Nehemiah 5 to care for the hurting ones around them. But as we've seen, it wasn't. And we should also learn from them that we should not mimic them in reflecting God's heart and God's concerns for those around us. As Christians, we're not only called to obey God's word, but we should have a desire to reflect his heart and his values to the world around us. Let me read just a couple of other commands that apply to us today. The first is from Proverbs 14, 21 and 31. It says, whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. And then 1 John 3 says this, but if anyone has the world's goods and he sees a brother in need, yet he closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Jonathan Edwards says this. He said, when our neighbor is in difficulty, he is afflicted. And we ought to have such a spirit of love to him as to be afflicted with him in his affliction. And so the heart of God, the heart of God must start here with his church and then move out into the world. That we who have received such undeserved kindness and grace and love should reflect his kindness and love to the world around us. Before moving to our third and final point about Nehemiah, I want us just to pause and consider the bulk of the application for us today from Nehemiah 5. The first is if you're here today and maybe you would fall into that group of vulnerable people. Maybe you're a widow. Maybe you're struggling financially or unemployed facing significant sickness. Maybe you're a single parent, an immigrant, a victim of abuse, or anyone marginalized. You should know that God is on your side. That even if no one else takes up your case, God says he will take up your case. Even if others seek to take advantage of you or oppress you, God promises to be your defender, your provider, and protector. Psalm 140 says, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted, and he will execute justice for the needy. So these Bible verses telling us that God is a father to the fatherless and a husband to the widow and one who provides for the needy, these are promises that you can cling to. You can know that he will be present for you, that he will be powerfully at work for you. And so take these truths and make them your hope when you're going through hard days and hard seasons. Maybe a second application is that if we don't have a concern for the struggles and the burdens and the trials of others, including vulnerable groups, then there's a disconnect between the way God has treated us and how we're treating other people. There's something here not lining up. A heart warmed by the fires of God's gospel cannot remain cold to the plight of God's image bearers. When we're unmoved by the concerns of others, it proves there's a disconnect between the way God is treating us and the way we're reflecting who he is 
to other people. God has provided for us and he has blessed us. And rather than being a blessing to others, we often hoard those blessings. That God shows us grace and compassion and kindness. And rather than doing the same to those who are hurting, we often neglect them. That God fights for us and God promises to seek justice on our behalf. And rather than being people who seek and pursue justice, we only worry about what will benefit us most. We who are supposed to be conduits of grace often become cul-de-sacs of grace. We who have tasted God's kindness and care but fail to reflect it, we actually say something false about God. We make it seem like God is uncompassionate, unconcerned, and unjust. And so choosing to disengage from the struggle of vulnerable groups, it reveals a lack of understanding of what God is like and how good he is and how the gospel actually motivates actions of love and care. And so for us today, this is a reminder that we don't separate issues of how we care and treat one another from our faith. And that means we probably need to reclaim some things that we've pushed to the margin. That means we need to see how we treat people, how we think of others, and how we care for others as first and foremost a discipleship issue of are we reflecting the Lord we follow. That means that issues like racial reconciliation, how immigrants and refugees are treated, care for the unborn at the beginning of life, and care for the elderly at the end of life, the way those with disabilities are treated, and how we care for the poor, those are not issues out there. Those are issues in here. And it starts with getting into the Bible and seeing the heart of God, seeing his gospel of grace to the undeserving And so that will compel us and push us to love and care for others. As we read the Bible, the early church, they did not separate preaching a gospel of grace from actually applying that grace to other people. And so what happens is the the letters we're reading in the New Testament, they're not only full of deep theology about God and his love, they're also full of deep practice about how we love other image bearers. Well, I think that's probably for us a little bit of a push to stretch us, but I also want to affirm us. While we have a lot of room to grow in these areas, let me encourage you with where I have seen God at work in our church. There are a lot of examples of how knowing God has led to our people loving others sacrificially. I've seen it in small ways as people quickly sign up to help others in a meal train, or as you've served these last four or five years here in a school building. I see it when I hear about people volunteering at a local food pantry or visiting nursing homes or making meals at Riley Hospital or going to prisons to counsel people or even just as you walk with others through trials and suffering with grace and with encouragement. But maybe one of the most exciting ways we've seen God at work in our church so far is that through many of our families and at least 15 to 20 who have participated in adoption and foster care. Now, a few things reflect God's heart as clearly as adoption and fostering, where we welcome the others into our family as God has welcomed us into his family. And for so many of those families who have done this, who have adopted or who are fostering, the motivation, the push for them, what's compelling is experiencing the grace of Jesus, the one who sacrifices himself for our good the one who puts our interests ahead of his interests, 
the one who leaves the comforts of heaven and comes to us. This gospel that takes strangers and orphans and it brings us into the family and the house of God. This is the kind of gospel that leads people to love and care for others, even when it's not convenient or easy. Now, I'm thankful for seeing this tangible fruit, this clear evidence of God at work in the hearts of people and how they sacrificially love others. But I'm also praying for more of it. I'm praying that this love would grow and that it would also spread to other areas. Now, if you're wondering about what are some next steps or how could I get more involved, there's a half sheet of paper on the back. You know, Drop off your offering and then grab the sheet of paper. And it tells you some local ministries that are caring for people in our own community. And if you're trying to think through, well, how do I do that well? How do we care for people in a biblical way? There are some recommended resources on there as well. Well, so far we've seen Jerusalem's pain and their problems. And then we saw God's commands and God's concern. And finally, we'll notice Nehemiah's response and Nehemiah's reforms. As we return to chapter 5, we see how Nehemiah, the reforms he puts in place, they actually reflect God's heart and they fulfill God's commands. That Nehemiah is just as concerned about the inner life of the people as he is about the rebuilding of the city and its walls. Notice in 5.10 that Nehemiah tells them to stop charging interest to one another. He just says, put a stop to it. And then in verses 11 and 12, not only that, but he tells them they need to return the interest charged and the assets they took to their original owners. And then in verse 13, Nehemiah does this rite or a ceremony to reinforce the oath, the promises that people have said yes to. He actually, he empties out his pockets He shakes everything out of there so there's nothing left. And then he says, if any of you breaks your promise, if any of you take advantage of the poor, if any of you go back to charging interest, God will shake you out and God will empty you out of everything just like these pockets. And the people agree. They agree to the promise. Notice as well in verses 14 to 19 some of the other changes that come with Nehemiah's leadership. We're told in 514 that Nehemiah is now made governor that he's the official representative of Persia over Jerusalem. Now, one of the benefits that came with the job we already talked about, that they could charge a little more money and take some of that money for themselves. But we're also told here about a food allowance. And that isn't like a $20 meal stipend when you go on a business trip. There was likely an exorbitant amount of food and wine and every other luxury you could imagine. And what's unique is that while Nehemiah's predecessors, they took full advantage of all those things, Nehemiah and his officials, the God-fearers, they do not. Follow along with me as I read verses 15 to 18. It says, The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all of this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, 
because the service was too heavy for the people. So it's not that they don't eat anything. It's not that they live exactly like the poor, but they do make personal sacrifices out of compassion. That last phrase points to it. That Nehemiah says, the reason I don't take any of their money for the food is because this is too heavy for the people. This is too big of a burden, and I'm not going to ask them to do it. So instead of being greedy with the resources, Nehemiah is actually generous with his resources. Here again, we see an application of the gospel. It not only makes us compassionate, not only makes us just, but it also makes us generous. And here in chapter 5, the God-fearing Nehemiah, he's set in stark contrast to the God-ignoring citizens. Where they were complacent about the poor, Nehemiah is compassionate. Where they were greedy, he is generous. Where they cared only about what benefits them, Nehemiah cares about what helps the people. Where they pursued unrighteousness, Nehemiah pursues justice. Nehemiah reflects the heart of God and how he treats other people. And we're told the reason he can do that is because his view of God, his awe or fear of God, it helps him better know him and be able to reflect him to other people. Well, Before we close, I want to just pause and ask, who does Nehemiah remind you of? Quick summary of what he's done here in chapter 5. Nehemiah loves the vulnerable ones. He fights for justice. He foregoes and lays down his rights. He makes personal sacrifices to pay what the people could not pay. We're actually told that Nehemiah pays to redeem many of the Jews out of slavery. Nehemiah humbly leaves his cozy palace to step down among the people. I think what we have here in Nehemiah chapter 5, we actually have a glimpse of Jesus. We see in Nehemiah the Jesus who humbly steps down from his perfect palace in heaven to come down to earth to us. The one who foregoes his rights and privileges as king so that he can become a servant. The one whose life is characterized by compassion and kindness and love and justice for the vulnerable. The one who makes the greatest sacrifice by giving up his life on the cross for our sake. And the one who generously pays for our sins and provides his own righteousness to redeem us from slavery and give us life again. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves us that we cannot get ourselves out of spiritual poverty and slavery, that we don't have the resources to pay our sin or pay our debt, that we can't provide the thing we need most. But Jesus can, and Jesus does, and he does it at immense personal cost to himself, sacrificing his life and his blood out of compassion and love and justice. He gives us this gift of salvation, this free gift of grace, which we we receive simply by believing and trusting in him. As we read about Jesus, as we hear the story of the gospel, what amazing love and grace. But I hope it's clear, what saves us isn't our good works. The good works I've been talking about today, including caring for the poor, including caring for vulnerable groups, those don't save us. Jesus alone can save us. But I hope you see how such a beautiful gospel of grace about how Jesus sacrifices for us, about a God who blesses us and shows us kindness and pours love and care on us. I hope you see how that would motivate and compel us to reflect his heart 
and how we treat and care for others. Maybe one question for you to have in mind as we leave today. The question is, how am I, or how specifically, am I reflecting the compassionate, loving, burden-bearing, justice-pursuing, and generous heart of God to other people? Not just inside our church, but to others. Would you close with me in prayer? God, we are thankful for how good you have been to us, that you were kind to us when we were undeserving, that you graciously provided for all of our needs, that you welcome us into your family, that you put our needs before your own needs. So God, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of grace. And God, I pray for us as a church that you would show us, that you would give us clarity of how we can better love those around us of how we can not just be concerned about our own church and our own needs, but how we can bear the burden of the people inside and outside our church. We pray that your spirit would move, that you would cause us to love the God of the gospel and to love his image bearers. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.